Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello folks, uh, welcome to Season 5 of uh, Wisdom of Friends show. I'm your host, Cal Ross. And today I'm really excited to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. Her name is Katina Hunter. Katina is a multi-million dollar producing agent and she's consistently ranked as one of the top 10% of the Coldwell Banker real estate agents in the Pittsburgh area. She has melted a love of speaking and a love of real estate and not only produces educational videos, for home buyers and sellers, but she teaches real estate agents and helps them enhance their business through effective communication. But the journey began almost four years ago when she joined Toastmasters International. Her goal back then was just to become more comfortable speaking. Katina not only overcame her fear of public speaking, but she is now a worldwide speaking competitor and coach. In 2016, Katina beat out over 32,000 other competitors to reach the final stage in Washington, D.C. as one of the top 10 speakers in the world. Last year in Vancouver, Canada, she did it again and is now a two-time world championship finalist. And friends, this is a fascinating conversation where Katina talks about her journey all the way from her fascination for the performing arts to becoming a top speaker in the world. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Katina Hunter. Good morning, uh, Katina. Welcome to uh, another uh, episode of the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to be on this program. And let me start off with my first impressions of you. I first saw you compete at the World Championship of Public Speaking in Vancouver, Canada. And what stood out for me was just your audacity and your delivery of the speech and what a profound message you had in your speech that uh, it really resonated with all our audiences. And uh, I knew then that having you on the show and having you share your wisdom of this uh, speaking journey that you've been on would be such a benefit for our, our audience. So I'm so glad that uh, you're on the, you took the time to be on the show. So welcome to the Wisdom of French show, Katina. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. And the fact that you said that I have wisdom is just so impressive because I don't get to hear that a lot. So I'll take it. Great. Excellent. So one of the ways, Katina, we kick off our show is by asking our guest a very simple yet profound question. And that is, what's your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by? And how have you applied it to your life? Whew, starting off with a heavy hitter, huh? Well, I think that my favorite quote, and it is also the philosophy that I try to implement into everything that I do is by Beth Moore. She says, you'll never make it to your milestones if you can't make it through your moments. You'll never make it to your milestones if you can't make it through your moments. And that is so, so true. Everybody wants the big prize. They want the 50 pound weight loss. They want to run the marathon. They want the big paycheck. But all of those milestones come with a ton of hard work 
before that. So I just try to remember that when I'm struggling with anything, that the hard work is necessary. You have to make it through those really difficult moments if you want the big prize. I really like that. And it's uh, it's really uh, one of those most important ingredients of any kind of championship uh, caliber contest that you compete in that is you know we all want a trophy we all want to be a winner but you know really it's the the hard work that goes uh behind it is so uh you know a lot of people uh want to kind of escape that and want to skip that part and that's such an essential aspect of uh you know, really becoming who you are. So that's so great that you share that. Uh, I'm curious, Katina, is I know you live in Pittsburgh. Has that been your home? Uh, is that where you grew up? Or uh, what's been your uh, childhood like? And what what did your parents do? And how did that shape your life? Ah, okay. Well, I haven't always been from the Pittsburgh area. I actually live about an hour north, but nobody's ever heard of Beaver Falls, but it's a lovely little area. And I originally grew up in Erie. Erie, for those of you who don't know, is known for probably having the most snowfall in the whole entire world every year. So it's not uncommon at all whatsoever for us to have waist-deep snow in Erie from October to April. So that is where I grew up with lots and lots and lots of snow. My mom was a teacher who, when I was born, decided to leave her career teaching to stay home with her children, and she had four kids. And my dad owns his home business. He is a pension actuary, which I'm sure you don't know what that is because I didn't for the longest time either. But he basically works with companies to help them set up their pension plans for their employees. So a lot of times I think back to different things that I've gleaned from my parents. And my mom's teaching experience, her love and passion for children and teaching, I feel has come through in me with my love and my passion for doing workshops for teenagers around the country. I absolutely love speaking to kids, especially teenagers. They are like my, oh my gosh, if I can get in front of a group of you know 15-year-olds, I am just absolutely in heaven. And my dad, his career basically focuses on the fact that he is a complete math whiz, and I definitely did not get my math skills from my father. I I seriously am the only person I know that gets a panic attack when I work like bake sales for my kid's school <laughs> because if somebody hands me a $5 bill for a 75 cent brownie, I am like in complete panic. <laughs> however, however, my dad is a very successful businessman. His business actually started in the basement of my childhood home. So a lot of the hard work and dedication that goes into building a business, I saw my father do that for himself. No, that is so great, and it seems like uh, the work ethic is what uh, what seems to have impressed you the most about your parents, and it's kind of like that's what you know has been a big factor for you when you have competed with uh, at the championships. And just for the benefit of the audience, uh, Katina in two thousand and sixteen beat out over thirty two thousand other competitors to reach the finals in Washington D.C as one of the top 10 speakers in the world. Last year in Vancouver, she did it again and is a two-time world champion uh, finalist. So my question to you, uh, Katina, is how did this journey with speaking, and as I I know you do keynote speaking, you're also a coach uh, helping other uh, speakers craft their speech. So how did this journey begin? Did you always know that you wanted to be a speaker or uh, what's the story uh, how did the story unfold for you? Ah, well, 
I think that a lot of people, when they start out in life, they have this conception of what they want to do. And for me, I loved theater. Absolutely adored theater. And I didn't really get into acting until I was in high school. I did a couple of plays in grade school, did very, very well. But in high school, I absolutely loved it. Now, you probably think that I had every lead in every play, and, and that was absolutely not the case. I never had a big, big role on stage. I was always kind of in the background, but I just adored it. And so I always thought, wow, if I ever had the opportunity to be an actress, that's totally what I want to do. So in college, I minored in theater. And the reason I didn't major in theater is because that's when reality kind of set in and said, well, go ahead and aspire to be an actress. But really, you're not. And here's the misconceptions. You're not from California. You didn't have a commercial when you were a kid. You're not a child star. Like the fact that you're going to make it real big is probably, you know, your chances are probably pretty slim. So I also studied marketing and advertising. And I graduated from Penn State and went into eventually real estate. Absolutely love what I do with my marketing and real estate. And I would kind of on the side just travel around and volunteer for 4-H clubs. Now 4-H is a nonprofit organization for youth ages 8 to 18. And I was a 4-H'er myself when I was growing up. I showed horses. And I absolutely adored volunteering for the 4-H program. But here's the problem. Whenever I would get in front of these kids, my mouth would go so dry that my lips would stick to my teeth and my heart would just race out of my chest. It was almost like being on a roller coaster. You know how the whole incline and you're going up and you hear the cranking and you're going up this huge, huge hill and you're just dreading it. And then afterwards, when you get all the way done with the roller coaster, you get off and you get out of line and you decide to jump in line again because you're like, oh my gosh, that was so much fun. But the whole time while it's happening, you're hating it. And that's what speaking was for me. I absolutely hated it while it was happening. But then afterwards, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so much fun. When can I run my next workshop? So somebody had suggested that I join Toastmasters, which is a public speaking group that you basically practice in front of the friendliest audiences in the whole entire world. So when I joined Toastmasters, I had no clue that there was even speaking competitions. But the competitive side kind of came out in me when I heard this, and then I started competing. And in my very first try of the international speech contest, that's how I made it to the final stage, which was very surprising to me. So I think that a lot of times in life, we start off with, oh my gosh, if I could just be an actress, that would be awesome. But really, our passion comes from being on stage, getting our message across from the audience. And so you're still able to take those things that you love, but you're just applying it in your life in a very different way. Now, that is so great. So what I'm hearing uh, from your sharing here is a couple of things. One is that you already had a passion for performance as an actor and uh, and part of being uh, growing up with this nonprofit organization 4H had made such a difference for you that you really wanted to give back and you started really, uh, you know, using your skills to... Uh, contribute to this organization but one of the things that you had to do as part of the process was public speaking and that's something that you did not like and it was like a roller coaster ride for you and finally uh, somebody suggested that uh, you know you should join Toastmasters and and that really enabled you to acquire these amazing skills and and I totally agree with you that uh and our passion is found on the stages that we compete in. And the stage could be public speaking. It could also be a stage of life. And it could be anything that uh, we, uh, you know, we uh, we use it as our main domain of, uh, you know, earning our income or whatever that might be. So, no, that is so great. And so one of the questions that comes up is, uh, and you've had many successes over the years, 
So one question that I'm curious about is when you look back at your life up until now, what would you say was the breakthrough success moment for you? And what I mean by that is the turning point uh, in your life or the strategic inflection point in your life, you know, when life was never the same again moment. Is there a moment that you can recall or that comes to mind? Without a doubt. After the 2016 World Championship Public Speaking Finals, I was disqualified because I had went over time. And that was absolutely heartbreaking to me because I really think that I had a good shot of placing in, in that competition. So the fact that I myself, my own actions, caused myself to be taken out of the running, I devastated doesn't even come close to describing how I felt. And I got off the stage and I realized I had gone over time and I just wanted to cry. And I wasn't upset that other people had won. That wasn't the reason. It was just that I wasn't prepared for that outcome at all. I was prepared to win, but I was also prepared to lose. And I just didn't realize that there was this third option out there that came and and completely blew me over. I could not get to my room, though, for about an hour and a half because I had so many people flocking to me to talk to me about my speech, to tell me about their experiences and their similar stories as well. So about an hour and a half later, I finally got to my room. And I cried very, 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 very hard for about 15 minutes, um, which is kind of funny because that would be, I went over time by exactly 15 seconds. So I let myself cry for one minute for every second that I went over time. My family and I went out to eat away from the hotel. And when we came back, they went sightseeing so I could just get some rest. I was exhausted. I ended up being in the elevator alone with just one other woman. And when she recognized me, she was completely ecstatic. And she starts talking to me super excitedly and going on and on about the speech and about the competition that when the doors opened to her floor, she didn't get off. So the doors closed and it went three floors later and it opened back up on my floor and she still wasn't done talking. So I invited her to sit down so we could finish our conversation. And she took me up on it and we sat down and I was very, the word to describe, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that she was so excited about all of this that w- that happened, and I was so devastated. It was as if she thought that I had won. And so I felt the need to explain to her that I, in fact, did not win. I didn't even place. I didn't even come close to placing because I had been disqualified. And it's at that, one, that time that she looks at me, and she had this confused look on her face, and she said, Honey, whatever you had to say in that time, you touched lives in those extra moments. I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that's exactly it. Like here I was thinking that the only redemption for all the hard work that I put into this was a trophy and, and not that the trophy is really it, but it was just kind of a validation of the hard work and the time and the effort that goes into all of this. But really the biggest prize is what she told me, the stranger by this elevator. And it's really the message. And I always knew that in my heart of hearts. I always knew that that was it. And that's exactly why I think a lot of people do compete and they do speak is because of the message. But for that moment in my devastation, I had lost sight of that. And she brought that back for me. That is such a beautiful story. And uh, one of the things that we are, you know, one thing that we all have this uh, thing that we need to deal with, that we are our hardest and toughest critics. And oftentimes we uh, don't 
gain that perspective of the impact that we make in the world until we get that feedback from somebody like a total stranger and tell us that, you know, what a difference that uh, our speeches, our contribution makes to their lives. And that that is such an inspiring story. So the other thing I want to kind of ask you is, uh, growing up, who were your mentors? And are there any particular people that you want to give a shout out to that's made a difference for you, that who's influenced you, or whom uh, you looked up to growing up? So I'm going to go with the complete cliche answer. And obviously, my husband and my children are definitely inspirations to me because they're in it. I even hate I hate admitting this, but there's been a lot of familial sacrifices that I've made to be a part of the competitions. I have missed putting my kids to bed many, many, many nights because I'd be in my basement practicing my speech. I have missed, I haven't missed any school programs, nothing huge, but just those little things that we cherish. Um, I've missed those. And there was a sacrifice there. And it wasn't just a sacrifice on my own. It was my kids and my husband who made those sacrifices as well. So I would especially like to thank them because if you don't have a support system backing you up on this, then competing in that type of competition is going to be very, very difficult and a lot more stressful than it needs to be. So first of all, them. But there was in high school this defining moment. I had a drama teacher named Mr. Gandolfo. And even though he never gave me a major role in high school, with the smaller parts that I had, he always held me to the same high standard as he did those who had the lead parts. And in my senior year, he wrote a short note to each of the graduating seniors. And the note that he wrote to me was, Katina, don't stray too far from the stage. So I'm pleased that even though I'm not in theater per se, that I didn't let him down. I didn't let myself down by not pursuing the stage in some fashion. That is awesome, and I'm sh- I'm glad that uh, you are part of the Toastmasters community and <clears throat> making a difference for all of us uh, with your impactful speeches. That is so great, and I want to kind of like I'm curious about some of your hobbies and interests before we get into your world championship uh, journey of public speaking. So tell us about your what are your favorite hobbies and interests, and uh, what's your favorite place to travel. Oh my gosh. I love to play games. I love games. I love card games. I love board games. I love to play chess. I love to play truth or dare. I mean, anything except for shoots and ladders. I hate shoots and ladders, but I absolutely adore games and I'm constantly asking my kids to just play games with me. Uh, I also own a few different handguns and I thoroughly enjoy target practicing. And I also volunteer for 4-H. As I mentioned before, my husband and I are the leaders of 4-H Teen Council. And on the first Thursday of every month, we have about 20 teenagers jammed into our living room. And together we do community service projects and leadership events. And I teach them about public speaking. And that volunteering for 4-H is probably my most time-consuming but rewarding interest that I have. I also enjoy traveling. I'm glad you brought that up. I last year got to visit three different countries in one trip. My brother lives in Denmark, so he was definitely on our stop around the the world. We also went to London, which I absolutely adored the London's Art Museum. Oh my gosh, I could have spent all weekend in there. And probably the best place though, if I could if I could tell people just to go to one place, it would be this very, very special place in Greece. Uh, that's where my great grandparents are from. And during my most recent visit to Greece, several of my family members, including my husband, 
we drove up this very ordinary road. There was absolutely nothing spectacular about this road at all whatsoever. And if my father hadn't been there before, we probably would have missed the part where you're supposed to pull off. And then you start hiking up this very unimpressive path. So we're hiking through these trees and you can't really see much except for this disorderly shamble of trees and growth all around you. When, however, you get to the top, you arrive at this stunning maze of stone buildings. And these are the monasteries of Metoria. And how the ancient monks ever erected these incredible stone buildings on top of these super high mountains, I will absolutely never know. But the view from the top is absolutely indescribable. I mean, no picture, no photo could ever, ever capture it just right. It's absolutely serene as if God himself had just touched that spot. So that is a very, it's just, it's just special. And if you could have a chance to go there, I would strongly recommend it. No, that is so great. And it sounds like you really uh, inspired us, uh, the audience, as well as me to definitely put it on our travel list. Uh, you know, I had an opportunity earlier this year to go to Spain and the UK and France, oh. and uh, it was just uh, one of the best experiences of my life. And so, yeah, Greece is something I haven't checked it out, but it's definitely on my to-do list. Uh, I know Santorini is another beautiful place in Greece. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even the Amalfi Coast in Italy is another beautiful, gorgeous place. But yeah, definitely. That's awesome. So yeah, you're going to have to email me that list of places that you went because I would love to check them out. Absolutely. We'll you know, in my free time, that. I'll just jump on a plane and shoot <laughs> over to Spain and just kind of hang out. Yeah, I mean, with Spain, I mean, there is so much like uh, there is uh, Mallorca, the island of Mallorca is just beautiful. And so is Granada and uh, Sevilla. These are, you know, the the whole flamenco dancing and the origins of the Spanish culture, and it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, that's great. So uh, as far as uh, books are concerned, uh, any particular books that you've gifted or reread over the years that you want to share or recommend for our audience? Sure, and it doesn't really have anything to do with public speaking, but my most favorite book in the whole entire world is called The Shack by William Young. Everybody wants a handbook for life, and – this book is is pretty much it. So if you have a chance to crack that one open, if you can get through the first like fifth of the book, the fifth first fifth is really really emotionally difficult to get through. But after that, it's just just beautiful. Great, and we'll include that in the show links uh, for the audience. So it's called the Shack, and uh, great, fantastic. And I have another question for you, Katina. And this is uh, you know having been through the ebb and flow of life, having. Uh, traveled, having had these experiences with Toastmasters and also uh, I understand uh, you're one of the top realtors for Coldwell Banker uh, since 2007. So what would you say is your definition of a successful life or a good life? Hmm. Wow. There, there's a real estate term that we use when we're determining the value of a building. And a structure is of most valuable when it's being used with its highest and best use taken into consideration. So the term is highest and best use. And I feel that a successful life when it comes to someone using their skills and their talents in the best way possible, in other words, their highest and best use, I feel that that is the epitome of a successful life. I love that. That is so great. It's really using our skills, using our gifts for the contribution of society. I think uh, you know that's really where the essence of 
fulfillment lies, in my opinion, too, and it's so great. And here's another fun question for you, Katina, and it's let's say we had a time machine, and this is a hypothetical situation. If you could go back in time and talk to your young self, what advice would you give her? I'm seriously disappointed that you said that it's a hypothetical situation. <laughs> Very, that's so disappointing. And you, you made sure to point that out a couple times as if for one second, I would think that maybe this is a possibility. But uh, to be honest, I'd be afraid of messing with my past because I, I really wouldn't want it to change my present situation. This sounds a little pompous, but I absolutely adore my life. I love my life. It's not perfect. I definitely have my struggles. But in general, each perceived mistake, each fight, everything has led me to my current situation. There is one thing, though, and it's not necessarily advice that I would give to myself, but I wish that I would have had more control over as a child. When I was about six years old, my mom was pregnant with my sister, and her doctor made a medical mistake, which caused my sister to be severely handicapped. If I could go back and change one thing in the past, though, it would have been that. However, my sister, her name is Kristen, she's taught me so many lessons that I'm grateful for. But I honestly, I think that I would, though, trade those lessons in for an easier life for her as well as for my parents. Mm. Uh, uh, That's really uh, great. And then um, we're going to shift gears here and we're going to go into the next section where we've gotten some questions from our audience. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll try to get through as much as we can. Uh, But the first question is... uh, What stops people, in your opinion, from achieving their full potential? I would say it's discipline. It is downright discipline, the elbow grease that comes into achieving your potential. I mean, you can have all of the talent in the whole entire world. You could have the best of intentions, but with lack of discipline and doing what it actually takes, that's what's going to keep them from getting there. So when I'm in competition season, I practice my speeches every day. And I don't just run them through my head. I actually put on exactly what I'm going to be wearing on stage. I set the timer. I give it my all each and every time. It's very, very tedious. It's very time consuming. But that's really the discipline that it takes. And the worst thing about discipline is that I really feel that you either you have it or you don't. I'm really unsure as to whether or not someone can be taught discipline and implement that into their lives. So I would encourage people to try. And for those of people who actually have a good sense of discipline in their life to teach those who maybe don't, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? You think discipline can be taught? I think it's a really, it, it comes down to how we reframe the word discipline, because oftentimes the word discipline has got a negative connotation in our culture, in our society. And I think Really, if you can reframe the concept of discipline that you are in control, you are in charge, that's really what discipline means to me. And it's really uh, one of the essential ingredients, uh, including hard work to get to your trophy or get to you winning the championship or whatever that is you're aiming for. I mm-hmm. think uh, reframing that whole concept of discipline can make a big difference, I think. And I think I totally agree with you. It's just having those habits and having the right rituals to uh, do daily that makes such a big difference. Now, and this is such a perfect segue, and I want to kind of get into the speaking part of this, uh, your journey. So tell us about, uh, before we get into the Toastmasters championship journey, I really want to ask you about what, in your opinion, or what have you learned as to be the 
art of creating an impactful speech or what is an impactful speech in your opinion and and how should one go about preparing and writing and creating a good speech? I think that has to have several different ingredients. A good speech is definitely going to have a lot of humor in it. If you'll notice a lot of the people, and I'm not just talking the people that win. I'm not talking about competition speeches. I'm talking about the most impactful speakers that I've heard, keynotes that I've heard and researched. A good sense of humor and getting the audience to just laugh and lighten up is a huge essential ingredient. I always try to do that first. Get them to laugh, get them to lighten up, show them a little bit of my my humor side of my personality, and then work your way into your a, a little deeper of a message, the emotional side of things. So every one of my speeches has a humorous side of it, a comical side, and an, a more emotional side. But then you can't, here's the thing though, you can't take the audience too far down because you have to make sure that you lift them back up at the end. So a lot of times people, not that these aren't impactful because they are very impactful stories, but stories about death, stories about very serious diseases, those are, are very impactful it goes sometimes too deep and you only in a competition, you only have seven minutes max to bring those, those audience members back up. So sometimes those more serious stories are best saved for a longer keynote when you have the time to really work them through those roller coaster of emotions. But everything for me though, hinges on storytelling, everything, no matter what point I make, I always try, I, I won't have a point unless I have a really good story to back it up. So even if I have the best sentence in the world that I'm like, oh my gosh, if people could just remember this one sentence, it's going to change their lives. If I don't have a story that emphasizes what that sentence means, I can't say it. I can't say it. It's not going to come across as anything more than one just really forgettable sentence. No, I agree with you. I think uh, what you, uh, the few things that I'm hearing, one is humor and the comical side of personality and really having that up front because that brings the audience closer to you in a way because it helps them uh, connect with you, the likability factor, if you will, and then really getting into a emotional roller coaster, if you will, and then eventually ending the story with a triumph and not, you know, something that brings it all together, that it's inspiring at the end. And I think it's, as you said, it's really hard to do in five to seven minute speech uh, when you're competing at a highest level of Toastmasters. So walk us through your first experience. I know we heard about the first experience where you were disqualified, but tell us about what was the preparation like and how did this whole thing unfold uh, when you competed and made it to the finals of Washington, D.C.? What was that experience like for you? When it comes to the preparation, I didn't realize the perception that, for example, my neighbors had of me. I recently was over at my neighbor's house and we were chit-chatting and he said, hey, I saw you in the paper. I said, oh, wow, thanks so much. And he cut out the article for me and laminated. I thought that was so, so nice of him. But he said, I have to be honest, uh, until I saw this, I thought you had a couple of screws loose. I'm like, oh, uh, thanks, Lyle. What do you mean? And he said, well, he is retired, so he spends a lot of his time outdoors. His yard is beautiful, and he spends a lot of time gardening. And uh, little did I know that when he'd be outside pruning his bushes and, and flowers, I would be outside in my yard practicing my speeches. I mean, actually using my yard as a stage because there's very few places. I don't have any place inside my house that is large enough to replicate the size of the stage at the semifinals and the finals. So I would go outside and I'd either be practicing in my garage or I'd be practicing in the yard. So all my neighbor knew is that I would be running around the yard 
screaming and talking, whispering and getting really close to crying. And he's like, oh my gosh, this woman's <laughs> nuts. But in my semifinals speech in 2016, when I went to Washington, D.C., the speech is called The Gift. And for those of you who haven't heard it, it's a, it's a little different. I actually take my clothes off in the speech. Not all of them. I have layers of clothing that I peel away to talk about well, I want I want you to watch the speech so I don't get I don't want to give it away, but ultimately the gift. And my other neighbor on the other side of my house, he would be outside mowing his lawn and I would trek out to my garage. And my garage is very hot, so I'd have the door open. I'd trek out to my garage wearing a full suit, heels, everything. And by the time I was done with my speech, I'd come back into the house wearing bicycle shorts and a sleeveless top and I'd be barefoot and I'd be carrying my suit with me and I would do this every day. So I, you know what, come to think of it, I still haven't had the chance to have a conversation with him to tell him that that's what I'm doing and that was over <laughs> a year ago. So I might just need to have to bring that up just to make sure that he doesn't think I have a couple of screws loose too. Well, that is great. And then uh, what was the experience like this time around as far as uh, watch, uh, Vancouver, uh, Canada and competing yeah, at that was, level? It was different. It was different. I don't think anything will top the first time. I grew very, very close to the other competitors in my semifinals as well as the final stage in 2016. And in 2017, I got to know them a a little bit, but not as much as I did the year before. I I didn't have a nervous edge to me the second time around. I knew exactly what to expect which I think was very, very helpful. And it just, it didn't reach the excitement that the first year did at all. But it was still very much an honor. And I'm wondering if maybe that's, I shouldn't be disappointed in that fact, because that's exactly what I joined Toastmasters. And that's exactly what I was competing to do, was to become very comfortable in all sorts of speaking situations. So I should actually relish the fact that this year, I seem to have achieved just that. Now, that is so great. And then uh, the other thing that I want to kind of talk to you about is walk us through your process when you're, when you're creating your speech. And I want to get into the nitty-gritty details of crafting a world championship speech. Now, I understand for the benefit of the audience, uh, when a contestant competes at the highest level, they end up giving three speeches, correct? It's, uh, two. It's, two is it two speeches? One at the mm-hmm. club level, district level, and then one is at the finals. So semifinals and the finals, is that... You have one competition speech that you can actually have as many as you'd like for each level of competition, but you go through the club, the area, the division, and the district, then you get to sent to semifinals. Now, for all those five competitions, you can use the same speech, but then for the finals, it has to be a brand new speech that you've never competed with since that in, in that year. So somebody who is actually has the foresight is usually prepared with two speeches right off the bat. And so how do you decide which one do you give for a semifinals and which one do you give for the finals? Is there like a method to the madness or do you come out blazing your best guns and like, you know, the biggest guns saying, okay, this is my best speech. I'm going to give it now. And then the second, you know, in the finals, I'll try to work with my second best speech and try to make it even better. Like, what's the strategy or what do you what do you think a lot of people do or what's your take on it? Ah, heck if I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I when I competed in 2016, I competed with the gift through the first levels, first, first five levels of competition. Then my speech that I gave on the finals was called an audience of one. 
And I didn't really like that speech as much as I did the gift. I thought that the gift was the epitome of my speaking ability. I mean, that that was it. And so I was kind of flirting with the idea of saving that for the final stage. But a good friend told me, Russell Drake, he said, that's fine, but you have to get there first. I was like, well, that's that's true. So you have to use whatever speech you can to at least get to the final stage. And then hopefully you've worked your final speech enough that at that point you love it. And usually I've been very, very lucky in the fact that an audience of one, which was my 2016 final speech, I did not really care for that speech as much as I did the gift until somebody said, I gave both speeches to them and they said that they could not decide which speech that they liked better. And they actually were leaning towards an audience of one. And so just the validation that somebody else said, you know what, I like that other speech a little better was very surprising to me. And that gave me the little boost of confidence that I needed to know that that speech is worthy of the final stage. So then the next year, I was not even considering speaking. I wasn't considering competing. I was just going to travel and do keynotes. And I was going to do the keynote for my own district, which would eliminate my chances of being in the competitions because you cannot do both. But another very good friend of mine, Russell Drake, came and he actually called me the one day and he said, well, you're competing, right? I said, no, Russell, I don't even I don't even have another good speech that I'm really working on. I don't really have anything. And he said, no, y- you need to compete. And I pressed a little bit further. He goes, no, you don't understand. You need to do this again. And he's the type of person that if he came to me and he says, Katina, can I borrow like $5 million? I just can't say no to him. I just be like, all right, yeah, do you want that in uh, check cash? How do you want that? So he's just <laughs> very, very convincing. And so I decided, I said, all right, I'll try. I'll try. I just don't want anybody's expectations to be completely crazy because I was a finalist the year before, but I will try. The only speech that I even came close to being a good competition speech was one that I originally titled Evil Puzzle Fairy. Evil Puzzle Fairy. And it was talking about how we misconceive people by their first impressions or yeah, pretty much their first impressions, how we have these misconceptions about people. And I really did not like that speech. I did not like it. I, I was like, all right, I'm going to try. This is the best I have. I'm just going to go for it. And as I was competing, I would get a little bit of advice here and there where somebody would make another comment and somebody would make another suggestion. And I learned from my first year round of competitions that some of these suggestions are really, really good. So even if they come across as not worthy advice at the time, if you're just open-minded enough to try it, try to implement it, practice it, and then decide whether or not you like the change. That was a huge, huge advantage to competing the year before and learning that because that's what made Evil Puzzle Fairy into the semifinals winner called Just One Piece. And that was another suggestion that I had from somebody else to retitle it. And I pressed. I said, no, no, I really like this title. I really like Evil Puzzle Fairy. It's intriguing. It's interesting. It's cute. And they said, no, it doesn't match the intensity of the speech. Like, oh, well, all right, I'll try it. So we came up with another title. And I absolutely, by the time I got to the semifinals, I adored this speech. But the key is, though, is that you have to give yourself enough time to work your way through all of those emotions in any speech, there are going to be times that you absolutely love it. There's going to be times that you need to edit it. There's going to be times that you need to, to beef it out with some more content. There's going to be times that you need to retitle it. There's going to be times that you absolutely hate this speech and are ready to throw it out in the garbage. But if you give yourself enough time, then you're going to be able to comfortably work through all of those emotions so that when you arrive and you actually compete with the speech, 
it's the version that you want to give and are looking forward to giving. I love that. That is such a so profound and you're really sharing your genuine experience of what it was like. And this is going to be so much of benefit for our audience. And I understand you also help and coach uh, people who are looking to compete at the highest levels. Is that correct? I do. I love it. I love it. I love it. I coach people from all over the world, Abu Dhabi over to here in Ohio, and I absolutely adore it. Uh, one of my clients was in, made it to the semifinals this last year in Vancouver, and I was sitting with him the day before the competition, and we're both running through our speeches together. And just to have that relationship and know what the struggles are and have that ongoing mentoring, coaching relationship is just invaluable, not only to my clients, but to me as well. I, I adore it. That is so great. And then we'll include your uh, website link in our show notes so that people can uh, get in touch with you and find out more about your coaching practice. So so I want to kind of get into a couple of things that you had mentioned earlier about humor and storytelling. So what have you found as the best tips about including humor into a speech? Is that oftentimes we get this you know, if you're part of Toastmasters, one of the common themes is, you know, you either start a speech with a question or a quote or some kind of a humorous oh, anecdote. No. So oh, what, no. <laughs> <laughs> what, what have you found to be the most effective way of opening a speech? Definitely, I try to get the audience to laugh in the first 15 seconds. In the first 15 seconds, if I don't have at least a chuckle, I, I think I'm in trouble. But honestly, I, I do believe that before a quote or a question, a rhetorical question was the way to go. But honestly, I tell my clients now that that, in my opinion, is a little overdone. So if you're going to do that, it has to be done in such a specific way that it at least is unique. Or if you're going to ask a rhetorical question, don't ask it to the entire audience. I have seen that so many times. How many of you, blah, 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 raise your hand if blah, 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 turn to the person next to you and da, 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 da. How, we've heard that so many times. So I feel that instead, though, what I've been trying to do with my speeches and what I advise my clients to do is really make it a one-on-one -on -one conversation. It's not you and the audience. It's you and one person in that audience. And then the whole audience assimilates with that one person. So instead of asking the whole audience a question, I would recommend looking to one person right there in the front row, look right at them, come right to the tip of the stage, look at them, point at them, gesture to them, make eye contact with them and ask them that one question. So ha have you ever felt nervous while giving a speech? And then let them answer, actually have a conversation right there in front of the audience. And I think that that is the shift that I've been taking with my speaking and what I advise my clients to do to make it unique and not the generic formula that people have been putting forth for year after year after year after year, changing it up a little bit. And I I'd like to think that we're spawning a, a change in how people hear speeches. That is so great. And uh, I think uh, this is, and absolutely, I agree with you. It's uh, because the same common advice has been so over, I mean, it's been utilized by everybody now. It's saturated the marketplace, if you will. Mm -hmm. Everybody does that. But something trying to do something different would definitely be the way to go. I totally agree with you. Tell us about the art of storytelling. What have you learned about storytelling and what's a good story? How can one tell a good story about, you know, about their business or about their life experiences? What have you found to be the essential and effective elements of a good story? 
Oh, storytelling is just a way to really beef up very, very dry material. If anybody's talking about their business and it's just dry material, really tell a story, implement that in there. And a good analogy with actual characters really helps people retain that information. Now, the best thing about storytelling is that you have to have balance. You have to progress the plot of the story fast enough that they're not getting bored, but every once in a while, slow it way, way down and have a sentence in there that has some really, really impactful, specific details. And that's what I love about stories is just kind of finding that balance. Where are the details needed? How can I really make them see what my grandfather looked like, for example? What was he doing when he was walking across the street? How was his fingers moving his rosary beads through his hand? And actually, as I'm on stage, taking on that personality and actually having that small little motion of, of rosary beads in your fingertips really enhances the stories. A lot of times, though, people do not value the significance of the pause. And I think that after you give the audience a really heavy dose of some very specific details, you need to pause. You need to let them take that in before you advance in your story. All of those different techniques really work very, very well and play very well into getting your ideas across and actually helping the audience to retain your message. I like that. I really like that. And then uh, what would you say are any tips as far as uh, concluding a speech? What's a good way to, because, you know, they say people remember your opening, they remember your conclusion, right? So what would you say would be like the best way to conclude a speech or leave a message for the audience? Honestly, the best conclusion that I can come up with in my speeches is basically a restatement of my introduction. I like to tie it right back in and kind of weave them all the way around. So when you're, oh, I, ha- I love this visual and, and follow me. When you give a speech, you bring your audience on this journey with you and you take them over some water and through the woods and you get them completely lost in your speech and they have no idea where they're going, where they've been. They're like, what, what is this? Where are we going? And then by the end, you've magically come back to exactly where you started. And when you conclude your speech, And you basically restate the introduction in a way that it walked them through their entire journey that they just went on with you. And it brings it back to the introduction. The audience finds that almost magical. Like, oh my gosh, we went on this huge journey, this huge trek here. We thought we were miles away from home. And here we are back at home. And the fact that they find that so magical, it's almost, it's very satisfying for them. And that's how I love to conclude my speeches by bringing them right back to where we started. I like that. That's so great. We're going to switch gears and we're going to move into a next next section in the interest of time. And that is the rapid fire round. Uh, Oh, gosh, I'm dreading this. I have no (laughs) idea how to answer some of these questions. So these are a bunch of fun questions. And it's the first response that comes to your mind. Of course, if you want to elaborate on it, feel free to do so. But again, this is the rapid fire round. So, Katina, are you ready? No, but I'll try. (laughs) So one the first question I have for you is, what is one thing you can do that might surprise other people? Oh, my gosh. I have a list. I can juggle. I can play the spoons. I can – this sounds really weird, but I can talk with my mouth closed. And I can do the cup song from Pitch Perfect. Wow. I had no idea I know. you could do that. <laughs> That's Who so knew, right? <laughs> well, the next question is, whose brain would you like to pick? Oh, goodness. Uh, My father's. My father's brain, I would love to see. He's kind of quiet, so I would love to see kind of what he thinks and 
and really get his perspective on certain things that he doesn't usually vocalize. Mm, uh, that's great. What color describes you best? Green. Because mm. it, I don't know why. Green. Because it's my favorite color and it's vibrant and fresh. And I'd like to think that even when I don't feel vibrant and fresh that I try to come across that way. That's great. The next question is, the single most valuable thing you've learned in life? End on a high note. When I was a kid, my mom, when I would be horseback riding, I had this pony that would have this nasty little habit and I would always, she would do it and I would always fall off immediately. I could not stay on her when she would do this, this little thing. And my mom would immediately stride over, pick me up and plop me back on her back. And then I'd go around the circle again and my horse would do this crazy little thing and I'd plop on the ground again. My mom would stride over, pick me up and plop me on her back. Well, one time I made it all the way around the circle without my horse doing that thing and I was actually able to stay on. And my mom said, well, that's it. And even though I had only been riding for maybe about 10 or 15 minutes, I was like, well, can I ride for a little bit longer? And my mom said, nope, you're ending on a high note. And she took me off of the horse. So I think that that is very, very important to, to apply anywhere in life is that you have to end on a successful note. Otherwise, if you quit when you're in the middle of a failure, you're letting that failure define you and inhibit your opportunities. Ooh, how's that one? Oh, that's great. That's profound. <laughs> Very deep. <laughs> I like that, though, you know, because you can end up carrying that previous experience into your next project, and sometimes that might not be uh, beneficial. And the final question within the rapid fire round, and this is, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? Any message on a billboard, what would that be? I, I have no clue. You've really stumped me on this one. Um, this sounds kind of cheesy, but, but possibly something like have more patience or be kind, kinder to others and just inspiring people to, I mean, we're in the middle of the Christmas spirit. I was just talking to a friend of mine recently and he said, I absolutely love this time of year. I just wish people would act this way all year round. And I, I totally agree. I wish that people would carry this Christmas holiday giving, caring, after you kind of spirit all year round instead of just the month of December. No, that's great. I like that. All right. So moving on to that wraps up our rapid fire round and we're going to get into a final <laughs> section. And you did well, Katina. I made it. <laughs> you made it. Yes. <laughs> and this is a final section. And I have just the final three questions for you. The first one is, what is your current personal or business passion project that you're working on? What are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year from now? Mm. My biggest project coming up is that next month I'll be traveling to Penn State University for State Leadership Conference, which is a statewide teenage leadership conference where teenagers from all over Pennsylvania gather. And I'm running a workshop there talking about the success of being interviewed. And a huge portion of that is really answering, like you just gave me these these very terrifying rapid fire questions <laughs> and how to do well with that. So I probably should have listened to my own workshop <laughs> advice first before doing this, but I'll remember that for next time. So that's what I'm really looking forward to. I've also recently started to do quarterly speech sculpt workshops. And speech sculpt workshops are when people come, they I have maximum of five speakers in a room they give their speech and it's met immediately with professional coaching advice and the other people in the room get to witness 
that type of advice so that they incorporate these techniques into their own speeches. And I also will make that available. I am going to start a members-only section of my website where this information and material will be available for those who are interested. That's great. And then uh, you know we'll include all that, uh, sh- uh, your website information on the show links and any other social media sites uh, that people can get in touch with you. I, uh, you are on LinkedIn, correct? Is that? Uh, I am. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook with Katina Hunter Speaking. And my website is katinahunter.com. Great. Excellent. The next question is, what are three things you're grateful for in life today? The three things that I would be grateful for most and who have what have made me into what I am would be, first of all, 4-H. 4-H is such a great program. and It's not only given me such a great start in leadership and in speaking and getting comfortable with teaching in life and competing. There's a competition aspect as well. But now as an adult, just being able to give back to that program and still be a part of it in a very big way means so much to me. The second thing I would say is my theater background. I thoroughly enjoyed being on stage, even though, like I said, and I I think I've mentioned this enough that it sounds like I'm kind of bitter about it, but I'm not. I've never had a big role on stage in high school, but those experiences and the camaraderie that you have with your fellow actors is definitely something that has carried with me into adulthood. And then lastly would be Toastmasters. Toastmasters is probably the third program and the only other program that I could think of that offers what it does to people. And it's actually a shame. There are youth leadership programs available in Toastmasters, but I wish that there was some way that I could have been involved in the program much earlier because it is such an inspiring and helpful tool that infiltrates into every other part of your life. That is so great. Very inspiring. I just want to acknowledge you, uh, Katina, for the fact that you know, listening to your story, listening to your life journey is so inspiring in so many different ways. I mean, the fact that you have transitioned from, you know, being a part of an acting theater group early on in life to really competing at the highest levels uh, with speaking. And that change came about not because you just wanted to be a good speaker. It was because of your the fact that you wanted to make a contribution to a nonprofit organization that made a difference for you, the 4-H uh, nonprofit growing up. And, you know, oftentimes uh, we acquire skills and gifts when we have this single-minded focus on giving back and contributing to society. And I think that's what you've been doing. And just learning your story and uh, hearing about the ways you are contributing to the Toastmasters community with your coaching and your inspirational speaking is so awesome. So really, thank you for that, Ben. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's, it's been great. So this has really been great. Is there anything that uh, you may want to share I may not have asked you? Oh, I just wanted to thank you so, so very much for having me. I absolutely love it. I'm here if there's anything you or any of your listeners need. And the main message today of why people should absolutely listen to Wisdom of Friends is that you have to put in the time towards your own successes. And part of that time absolutely should be listening. And Wisdom of Friends and you, Cal, give quality advice. So it's up to your listeners to really take that time to put that into work in their lives. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I really valued and uh, valued our conversation here uh, this morning. And again, uh, for those of us who are listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. 
Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.